0: Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Those words come from Samuel Stone's great hymn, The Church's One Foundation. And they are a powerful reminder to us all that disunity within the body of Christ, that is to say dissensions and quarrels among believers, ranks as one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the Christian gospel. Dr. John White, who for many years was a medical missionary overseas, put it well. He said, when you stop and consider all the great divisions that have plagued Christendom down through the centuries, you begin to realize that it's nothing short of amazing that God continues to use the church to expand his kingdom on earth. And anyone who has even a cursory knowledge of history knows just how true and how sad that appraisal really is. It's one of the great scandals of Christianity that believers have from time to time been so divided, sometimes divided even to the point of shedding each other's blood. We have divided over everything imaginable, modes of baptism, styles of worship, forms of church governance. We battle over matters that are large and weighty, and we have quibbled over matters that are small and insignificant. Oh, it's true. We Christians may drink from a common cup, or at least we did prior to COVID. But very often, our individual lives are anything but a sign of commonality and like-mindedness. As someone has said, the problem is that we pray on our knees on Sunday and on each other every other day of the week. Well, it was a concern for the unity of the church, and therefore the ongoing and effective ministry of the church that occupied the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ here in today's gospel lesson from John chapter 17. You see, by the time you get to this point in the narrative, it's pretty clear Jesus' earthly ministry is rapidly drawing to a close. As a matter of fact, this 17th chapter of John describes the very last night that Jesus would spend with his disciples prior to his crucifixion. By this point in the story, a number of important events have already transpired. Jesus has already had that final meal in the upper room with his disciples. Judas Iscariot has already gone off into the night to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. At this very moment, the temple guards were gathering with their torches and with their spears, ready to make that march across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest the Lord. Shadows were lengthening. The darkness, both physical and metaphorical, was beginning to descend upon Jesus and His disciples. And yet what's so amazing is that even at this point, even as Jesus stands on the brink of destruction, on the brink of suffering and death, His final thoughts and concerns are not for Himself, but for His disciples. In verse 22, we read these words, And lifting up His eyes to heaven, Jesus prayed, Father, the glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we One. Think about that. On this most momentous of evenings, with his arrest imminent, Jesus is praying to the Father, but what is he praying about? What is he most concerned with? He's praying for the unity of his fledgling church. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you think that unity is Amongst the apostles was the most important thing as far as Jesus was concerned. Why did he pray for this above all else? Well, when you stop and consider the context, it's pretty obvious. It's because, as we've just noted, Jesus' own ministry is coming to an end. This section of John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, are commonly referred to by scholars as the farewell discourse, because Jesus is saying goodbye Within 24 hours, it will all be over. He will be arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified. But here's the point while his ministry is coming to a close, the ministry of these men, the ministry of the apostles, the ministry of Peter, Andrew, James, John, all the rest, their ministry was just beginning. Jesus was passing the baton on to them. It was now going to become their responsibility to carry on His reconciling work in the world. It was going to be their responsibility to go and preach the good news of Christ's salvation to every living creature. And Jesus knew that if they were going to be successful in that task, that awesome responsibility, well, then unity unity was not merely an option unity was an absolute necessity unity was essential for a couple of reasons first of all it's because jesus knew that the world was going to be opposed to the messengers of the gospel jesus knew that christian ministry can be difficult Now, this would not have come as any surprise to the disciples because Jesus had over and over again warned them about this. In fact, two chapters earlier in this very same gospel, Jesus had said, Do not forget, a servant is not greater than his master. If the world has hated and persecuted me, mind you, the world will hate and persecute you as well. On another occasion, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. Beware of men, for they will drag you into the courts. They will flog you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before kings and governors. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, Jesus knew that the world desperately needed to hear the gospel, but he also knew that the world was going to be bitterly opposed to the gospel like a child who has stepped on a rusty nail and desperately needs a tetanus shot, but fights vehemently against the nurse who's trying to give it to him. So the world, Jesus knew, would be resistant to the gospel. And that's the reason he prayed for unity. Because he knew that in times like that, you and I need each other. When the world is against us, it is helpful to know that we are not alone. That we can encourage each other, that we can support each other. Think about the marriage service for just a moment. The prayer book says that when God established the covenant of marriage in creation, that union of heart, body, and spirit between a husband and a wife, he did so for a very specific reason, a whole series of reasons, but one in particular. For the help and comfort given one another in times of prosperity and adversity well what is true in the marriage vocation is also true in our vocation as Christian people when the world is against us we need each other yes we need each other in times of prosperity of course but especially do we need each other in times of adversity we cannot run the race of faith successfully by ourselves And so Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. He prayed that they might be one. But there's another reason why Jesus prayed for unity. And that's because he knew it wasn't just the world that was going to stand against the messengers of Christ. There was an even greater enemy. Peter, in his first epistle, said, be sober Be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter reminds us that if it weren't bad enough that the world stands against us, the devil also stands against us and would very much like to disrupt the work of the church. That's why Jesus, in this same prayer, where he prays for unity also prays that his followers might be protected from the devil. Today's lesson, you'll notice, begins at verse 20. But if you back up just five verses to verse 15, you find Jesus praying this. He said, Father, I do not ask that you take my followers out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Most of you, I'm sure, have seen one of those nature programs where there is a herd of antelopes or gazelles that are galloping along and all of a sudden one of the herd falls behind the others and gets isolated. What normally happens to that animal that gets isolated? Well, of course, we all know what happens. Inevitably, some predator, some panther, some lion comes bounding out of the brush and attacks and kills it. Well, Jesus says that is exactly what the devil wants to do to us. He's prowling about. He wants to thin the herd. He's going to attack us when we're alone, when we're isolated, when we're off doing our own thing. And so that's why Jesus prayed for unity. He understood that we are better off together than by ourselves. There's safety in numbers. So he prayed for unity in the church. Prayed that we might all be as one. Now at this point, it's worth pausing and asking an important question. Precisely, what kind of unity is Jesus talking about here? All right, it's obvious. Unity is essential to the mission of the church if we're going to be successful. Obviously, unity was near and dear to the heart of our Lord. In fact, of all the things that Jesus prays about in this great prayer here in chapter 17, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer, the one thing that he spends the most time on is this petition for unity. So clearly, it's of the utmost importance, so important, in fact, that some have suggested that the breaking of unity, the breaking of fellowship, is the worst of all possible sins. A well-known bishop once said that if you ever have to choose between disunity and heresy, choose heresy. Well, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Is it true? Would Jesus agree with that sentiment? Would Jesus say that unity is more important than even false doctrine? Listen, it's important to understand that when Jesus prays for unity here in chapter 17, he has something very specific in mind. Jesus is talking about a unity at the deepest level. You see, when most of us think of unity these days, when we hear that word, we tend to think, first and foremost, of an organizational unity. I mean, after all, we Americans are an organizational people, so that's the first thing that springs to mind. We think of the kind of unity that comes from being a part of the same organization or the same denomination or the same club or the same guild or whatever it may be. Some of you may recall that It was this kind of organizational unity that drove the ecumenical movement in the years following World War II. Everybody thought if we could just come together in a great organization like the World Council of Churches established in 1948, we can show unity to the world. Well, don't get me wrong, there is certainly a place for organization in the life of the church. We need that. If the faithful are going to have places where they can gather for worship, if they're going to be schools, paid staff, missionary endeavors, then clearly we have to have the kind of organizational structures that support them. But that being said, it is very naive to assume that that kind of outward unity alone is enough to win the world to Christ. Sometimes it's a liability. Think about the early church described in the book of Acts. Those early days were times of great religious ferment for the church. But was the church organized? Hardly. Nothing but a really a group of poor people going around gossiping the gospel, sharing the good news of what Jesus Christ had done in their lives. And yet that was a time of tremendous growth. Lives were transformed and changed. Paul and Peter and their companions literally went out and turned the world of their day upside down, and they did it without a fraction of the organizational resources that we have today. And yet you think about those other periods in history when the church has been highly organized. Think about the Middle Ages, for example. The church was very organized. In fact, there was one vast church in the West headed by one individual, the Bishop of Rome, But in spite of all that organizational unity, that was not a high point in the life of the church. It was not a time of growth. It was not a time of evangelism. It was a time of great wickedness and deception. And it would take a reformation to recover the truth of the gospel. So organizational unity, yes, it can be helpful. But it is not sufficient and it is not what Jesus had in mind when he prayed for unity. But nor did Jesus have in mind what we also think of when we think of unity, and that is conformity or uniformity. It's been said that if organizational unity is the bane of the liberal church, well then conformity or uniformity is the bane of the conservative church. And that I mean a situation in which, you know, everybody looks exactly the same. We all think the same. We all act the same. We all go to the same sort of places. You know, there are some churches that want that kind of a congregation in which everyone looks exactly the same. There are some pastors that want that kind of a congregation in which everybody looks exactly the same. Like a row of cereal boxes on the grocery store shelf. They think, well, that's unity. But is that what Jesus meant? Far from it. The picture of the kingdom of God that we have in the New Testament is a picture of great diversity. You take a look at John's great vision in the book of Revelation. He said, Behold, I saw a great multitude in white robes from every language, people, and nation under heaven. The kingdom of God is filled with all sorts and conditions of men. It's not a congregation of clums. So we are forced to ask the question, well then, if it's not organizational unity that Jesus is praying for, if it's not conformity or uniformity that Jesus is praying for, what is this unity which he asks the Father to grant? What is this unity that is essential if the church is to fulfill its mission? And I'll tell you, the answer is in verse 20 of today's lesson. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And here it is, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The kind of unity that Jesus wants for the church is that kind of intimate unity that is enjoyed by the members of the Godhead. It is the kind of unity that is enjoyed by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now clearly, that is a kind of unity that the world cannot even begin to comprehend. It is a spiritual unity. And I use that word specifically because it is a unity that only God the Holy Spirit can grant when His people are reborn. When they are born again. And it is a unity that is characterized by three things. The unity for which Jesus prayed is characterized by three things. First of all, it's a unity in the truth. Earlier in this prayer, Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. That is, make them holy, but sanctify them in the truth. I'm sure you're well aware of the fact that we are living in a very divided time in history. We are living in a divided culture, we are living in a divided country, we are divided on everything imaginable. We are divided over the issue of gun rights, brought to the fore, quite frankly, by the tragedy that took place this past week in Texas. We are divided over right-to-life issues, again brought to the fore by this leak from the Supreme Court. You name the issue, we are divided over it. And one of the reasons we are so deeply divided is because we have lost the idea of truth. We have lost the idea of objective truth. Truth with a capital T. You know, there was a time in history when people really did believe that there was truth. And there were objective categories of truth. And beauty and things that were noble. There were some things that were always right and some things that were always wrong regardless of the circumstances. But that is no longer the case. Today we are not encouraged to tell the truth. We are encouraged to tell your truth. We no longer have a sense of reality. We only have competing versions of it. Is it any wonder, then, that we are so deeply divided? Uh, But you see, this is where Christians differ from the rest of the world. We do believe in absolute truth. We do believe that there are some things that are noble and good and lovely and pure. And we do believe that there are some things that are always right and some things that are always wrong. And why do we believe in truth with a capital T? Because the one we serve said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And my friends, if you believe that, you will be united with those who believe this highest truth. You will have deep unity with them. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why those who say that you can have unity with false doctrine are crazy. It's because they don't seem to understand you cannot have unity without the truth. The only thing you have is forced conformity and tyranny. So, the unity that Jesus prayed for was a unity that was grounded in the truth, the truth of God's unchanging word. Secondly, it was a truth that was grounded in a common goal, a common purpose. I said a moment ago that Jesus was not praying for a church in which everybody was exactly alike. But he was praying for a church in which there was great diversity of persons, but everyone working for a common purpose, for a common goal. Again, the example here is the example of the Godhead. All three persons of the Trinity, think about it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unique. It's one God, but three persons. And the prayer book makes it very clear. The creeds make it very clear. The three persons of the Trinity are not the same. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, and so forth. They are different. They even have different functions. But they are all working together for a common goal, the salvation of humanity. The same should be true for you and for me. Look at how Jesus puts it. In verse 23, he says, Father, I pray that I may be in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That's the goal. Jesus wants them to be one so that the world may know that God has sent him. That should be our goal as well. The goal of the Christian church should be to lift up Jesus Christ that others may come to know Him and to know His salvation. Listen, if that is our primary goal, it does not matter where we come from. We are a diverse group. Some of us are native Charlestonians. Some of us come from that strange land called Ohio. But if we are united in a common purpose regardless of our differences? All those things will pale by comparison if we're all contending for the same goal. So Jesus' unity is characterized by the truth. It's characterized by a common purpose lifting up Jesus Christ. And finally, it's characterized by the most important thing of all. It is characterized by love. Look at how today's lesson ends. Jesus said, Father, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The old song, perhaps you remember it says, they will know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know that we are Christians by our love. And that is so true. Love is the cardinal virtue. But when Jesus talks about love here, He's not talking about that saccharine, mushy, hallmark kind of love. And He's not talking about raw lust, which is what you see on television. Jesus is talking about agape love, that self-sacrificing, self-emptying love that thinks of another first before self, the love that he was about to display by his death upon the cross. That's the kind of love that he's talking about. Paul, writing to the Colossians, put it this way, which binds everything together in unity. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do we experience that kind of love here at St. Philip's? Do we experience that kind of unity here at St. Philip's? Oh, yes, we are all part of the same congregation, all part of the same denomination... Many of us are very similar to each other, but that's not the question. The question is, do we have the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for here in this passage? A unity in the truth of God's unchanging word. A unity of purpose. And a unity in that love which thinks not of self, but of others first. You know, there's a reason why Jesus prayed for this unity. It's because he knew it would be a hard thing for the church to achieve. And yet he knew that without it, the church could never succeed. My prayer for us as we head into the summer is that we will strive for this kind of unity. I would ask that you join Jesus and join me in praying for this kind of unity here at St. Philip's. This unity at the deepest level our final hymn today is onward Christian soldiers marching as to war it has this stanza in it we are not divided all one body we one in hope and doctrine one in charity may God grant that it may be so with us Amen.